0: What's up, this is Matt Dietz and this is none of my business. This is the show where I get to sit down with creative and smart individuals who are in the middle of their entrepreneurial journey because nobody is given a playbook at the beginning of their journey. So I wanted to build a library of people who have done it before us so we could learn from them. So today on the show, I have my new friend, Mark Vincent, who is the founder of Design Group International design group international is a consulting firm and mark founded it years ago and you know i've hired a coach before but mark and his team are advising c-level executives at at all different sized companies and so i was fascinated to sit down and hear about what they do and how they do it Because at that level, I was curious on, like, do all companies have the same type of problems? How do you go and attack problems like this? How do you coach people that have hit a roadblock? And I loved, really, their approach, which is heavy into listening, right? Listen to what it is. Because they have to go in. They don't run the business. The consultants don't run the business. They have to really learn what's happening in there. And so, so there's a lot of... We, we talk a lot about like psychology and where people hate Roblox and things like that. And so we really had a, a great conversation. I also talked to him a little bit. I said, well, what happens if you go into a company and, uh, you know, the CEO hires someone and you have to go and talk to the COO and the COO doesn't want you there? Like, how is that handled? And I loved his response to that. so I'm excited for you to hear that their approach to doing their job was founded on years of institutional research and so and and backed by science and it was really interesting to hear how it was formed they even went ahead and it formed their own professional certification they invented a professional certification which you can go and take and be certified on how to do something like this so anyway mark thank you so much for coming in it was a pleasure meeting you i look forward to getting to know you better down the road and uh, let's just get on the conversation. Oh, well, I am joined today with Mark Vincent, who's the founder of Design Group International. Hi, Mark. Hello. How are you? I am doing very well today. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. I'm excited to chat with you today. You've got some good stuff to share. So why don't we start with an easy one? You know, where are you from and how did you find yourself in Idaho?
1: I grew up in Indiana, but lived in Wisconsin for a very long time. That's where my first wife was from, and uh, we moved there uh, when she became ill and finished raising our children there in the center of family. And uh, she passed away in 2015. I have subsequently remarried, and along that way, ended up uh, bringing some... Help to a significant data integration project that was happening here uh, in Boise and um, ended up about 10 days a month on site and uh, family was moving to the area as well. And we ended up with these two clusters of family, one in Boise and one just north of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And so I have a home in both places and kind of flip back and forth COVID really made us determine what is home and where are we primarily based and it's it's here.
0: Oh, how do you like it?
1: We have enjoyed
0: it very much. Yeah. I mean i I hail from the Midwest too, from so mm-hmm. from the Chicago area. So it's always nice to cross paths with a fellow Midwesterner <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about Design Group International. Just give me a little one-on-one on that, and then we'll kind of we'll kind of go back, and then we'll come back forward.
1: Design Group International is a community of practice, so it's a group of colleagues and professionals who really believe in a form of consulting called process consulting, and I'm sure we'll end up talking about that. Uh, the Entity Design Group International is a platform for them. So it provides all of the administration uh, in the background, all the billing and collection and a brand. And it helps folks really buy down the cost of establishing a consulting practice on their own. And they can build it there, have a full career, have colleagues, be able to scale up to take on really large projects or just very small boutique types of things. And um, over... 20 years we've grown this to where right now we're managing over a hundred clients a month wow uh all across the country and many of them are international uh entities very good so companies hire you to help solve problems is that that is a very good description okay Yes. Okay. We would like to say that sometimes they hire us because they want to pursue an opportunity. Okay. Even better. <laughs> All right. So so let's back up and let's talk about how you how'd you get into this field. So uh,
0: what were you doing before you formed this company, and and what led you to the forming of this company?
1: Well, there are some people who actually you know drive forward with the great great big grand vision and there are others of us like me who back their way into one and then find out oh there's a vision here now let's pursue it and that's what happened for me i was doing some graduate work in the 1980s wanted to learn more about leading groups through a discernment process where there was difficult decisions to make and you might have a variety of constituent groups that have to actually somehow come together to get something done And there had not been a lot of social science around that, but some of it was actually uh, being researched and published in the 1980s while I was doing this work in graduate school. And along the way, some people got wind of what I was working on and I started without ever putting any shingle out to be asked, could you come help us? And the phrases often came like this, we're painted into a corner here or we have a board that's resigning in mass or we are about ready to have a lawsuit come against us. Can you help? And so I'd be meeting with these groups, working with some of these methodologies. So now I had a, an unintentional laboratory, found out that they worked, and then I'd get another invite uh, yeah. for something even more difficult. And it was ranging from family business uh, around succession to nonprofits to religious organizations to stockholder companies. It just began to really spread And I had to decide, is this almost like a vocation? Yeah. And um, went through my own kind of discernment process. And we determined, yes, this is uh, something I should be doing. Uh, It's a unique gifting. Well, now, where do you put it? And and on what platform does it rest? And it was out of that that Design Group International came into being. Okay. So talk to me a little bit about what the consulting
0: world was like back in the 80s and what you... We're going to do, how were you going to be different? You know, uh, you know, so what, what in your research and your work did you look at and say, you know what, I think we've got something here that's different than what's happening or what's been happening over the past 10 years or so. And I think that we can carve out a space here. So what was going on and
1: and what were you going to bring that was different? Uh, well, many people love the cartoon Dilbert and as, um, Scott Adams was starting that cartoon, one of the reoccurring characters for a while, I think it's been a while since we've seen it, but it was the consult tick. <laughs> it was this bug that would bury itself into the corporate boss's side and wouldn't let go. Would yeah. try to upsell services and, and just try to get their fangs in it and then you know get as much money out as they can. And that is the reputation of the consulting industry. Okay. Is We try to get in, we try to sell you as many services as we can, we hold our... Our intellectual property behind the scenes, behind some magic screen, and then try to upsell you with more things. Sure, so let me give you a free
0: consultation, and then you come in. Here's what I can fix. Right. Here's how I can fix it. Right. It's going to be seventeen thousand dollars. Yeah, whatever it is. Right. An and
1: down. you might remember the commercial that said, "Well, we don't actually do what we advise. We just advise. Right. We right? tell you. Yeah. Right. We just tell you. Yeah. And that's that's the industry reputation. And one of the problems is." Uh, there's a confusion of whether this is actually consulting, or it's a project manager, or it's a subject matter expert, or it's a contractor. So it was. I was about ten years into this work and became very uh, acquainted, deeply acquainted, with the writings of Edgar Schein who really would be considered the father of process consulting, of really writing out what the methodology is. And then there's also Peter Block, who developed a manual for consultants called Flawless Consulting that was also very client-centered and question-asking rather than Mm advice-giving. So it is a coachative approach some people might say to consulting but i would more likely say it's an iterative approach it is assuming that if you don't have the answer as a business owner why would i say i have the answer you know your context you know the problem and usually these issues are adaptive changes not technical changes so it's not known problem known solution it's a problem that's emerging or an opportunity that's getting definition, and we don't quite know what to do. And so, coming alongside having been through a number of those kinds of scenarios to help facilitate and guide and frame up and dig into it beside the client. So, we're all listening to it together mm-hmm. and we're able to eliminate things that we don't want to do and find the direction or a line of sight to where we do want to go. That's really what process consulting is. So rather than say, I know what to do, a process consultant would say, what did you do? Yeah. And why did you do it? Yeah. And who was playing what role? And let's, let's really create what we might call an artifact of, of what has been done that can then become a map for what we'll do next.
0: Okay. Gosh, I have so many questions. I'm trying to think of what (laughs) order to put them in. Uh, Might as well go with one that's off the top of my head. So I hired a business coach a while back. And it was just someone that I met through some networking and marketing and stuff like that. And I was at a point in my career where I was like, you know, I've been doing this for seven, eight years. You know, maybe I can't see the forest for the trees. Maybe somebody can come in and take a five mile look at my Mm -hmm. business and give me some pointers and stuff like that. But I couldn't help but find myself in a situation as I was sharing, as I was sharing information, I couldn't help but be a little skeptical with the person I was working with because I was like... Well, you've never run an insurance right. agency before. Why, you know, why are you going to know what I need? You know, and and he was helpful, and mm-hmm. and he helped me figure out some things and solve some problems. But, you know, what, how did you collect the skills necessary to walk into a situation, you know, with confidence and? You know, be able to help a company and maybe overcome some of that, you know, skepticism that is probably natural in a situation like that.
1: Well, there's a lot of skepticism, and a lot of it is well founded uh, because what I'm hearing from the consultant, if they're like really being a subject matter expert and telling me things, I am having to unpack it and I am trying to adjust it to my scenario. And I'm actually not talking, I'm listening. And so in process consulting, and I think we came with practice, you know, those 10,000 hours of doing it repeatedly, you get the client talking, you get them to describe their analysis, you, you help them unpack it and organize their thinking, and I'll use this phrase again, so you can get a line of sight from here to there. There's a reason why they did things. There's a reason why this problem is important to them or this opportunity is a challenge to them. Let's talk about that. And then you can begin to ask questions. Uh, In coach training, there are these acronyms, wait and waste, which is why am I talking? uh, Which is the first one. And then waste is why am I still talking? In process consulting, it's much the same. Uh, if I am telling you what I know, I am not drawing you out. I'm not helping you solve a problem. And the issue is you won't own the solution. You'll be thinking, does this work? Can this work? Instead of declaring what you're going to do and by when. And for us in process consulting, it's not just you as a business owner that's the client. It's your organization and you together. Right. And the, the people that connect with it. We're working at that system together. So we need to get you listening just as strongly as we are. And that starts by emptying you out so that everything that you've known is out here and we're organizing it. And now we're turning together to look at that opportunity or that problem.
0: right? Thank you.
1: So let's pause that for
0: a second. Let's go back to day one of your business, All right. You wake up one day and I'm going to start a business, you know, so talk to me about what maybe your first year was like when you decided to, you know, step into this business I'm going to give i I'm going to take a run at this. What was the first year? Like, how did you get clients? You know, how were your first few client interactions and then how did you grow?
1: So the year that we started Design Group International was 2000, so okay. 22 years ago already. I can't hardly believe that. Right. And it grew from the sense that we couldn't find a platform because I'd done a fair bit of academic work and had done some really large projects using these methodologies. One was an international project that went five years. Wow. There was a body of literature. There were many case studies that had congealed around it, and we were looking for a home. And all we could find was a place that wanted the material. It wasn't looking for a consultative practice. So it would buy the books and the rights to curriculum and stuff, but didn't want a practice inside it. And that's really where my heart was. As I said earlier, I backed into a vision. Well, there it was. This this is what I care about the most. So let's do that. What's interesting is that that firm, that want, it was a, um, a financial services firm that wanted the material, turned around and bought a very substantial consulting agreement with me in that first year. Okay. And that made us viable in year one and slightly profitable in year one. And at the end of that first year, we had to decide, is this a boutique kind of practice? Like I'm an artisan who's got his little shop, and and I only take on so many clients, and then you have to stand in line, or you have to go somewhere else? Right. Or do we have something here that others could benefit from and participate with? So like a whole new discernment process yeah. kind of broke out, could and we scale? decided let's network and scale. And it was out of that that Design Group International really became the platform that it is now. Great. So talk me
0: through what your first job was like with that financial services firm. Like, what were they
1: dealing with and how did you help them? They were um, a fraternal benefits organization. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of how that is constructed, they have to provide benefits back to their members, especially educational ones or in the form of grants. Uh, And it's in lieu of paying taxes because they're fraternal benefits. They were looking at a significant nationwide, uh, what they called a stewardship university. So it was an attempt to bring monetary and financial management education to families uh, in their members and in the communities that they were a part of. They had not put something like that together before. So we helped pull together the uh, initiative and helped design it with their principals who would then run it. And... Um, Help, really just to roll it out. And then we walked away. So how did you gather, how long did it take you to gather
0: all the information necessary to advise them properly? I mean, the financial services industry is very regulated and I'm sure the type of business that they were working on has certain rules and regulations. I'd imagine there's a lot that you had to learn because you don't want to advise them in the wrong direction, right? So what was that process like to to learn everything you needed to learn so that you could... You know, counsel them with authority.
1: Yeah, well, one thing is that you kind of divest yourself of authority. You're not the authority. Mm -hmm. So in process consulting, what you are practiced in is the iteration. And that means you don't have to know, but you do have to ask the questions. And you have to have some capacity to help organize the answers that are coming out of the people who are going to actually do the work. So we literally go back to, not who, what, when, where, why, and how, like if you're writing a, a news story, but why, who, what, when, where, how? I mean, actually asking those questions, detailing and organizing the answers. You can start with any one of them, but when you render it back, why is a purpose question? This is the mission. Do are we all in agreement that this is the mission? And when we say, "Yes, we want communities to have good education? Well, wait, who is we? Yeah, what is a
0: community? Yeah, let's get down to the
1: nitty-gritty, right, right? We have to have unity around a mission or it's not going to happen. Then you start to get into who's going to play what role, what what is the criteria for success, or what does done look like? And then you start to get really granular. How are we going to do it and by what date and, and, and so forth? But you literally render that, pulling the information out of the people – And then they are the authorities. They are the ones responsible. And you're just helping to hold up the process and the map. So I know the questions are probably
0: different depending on what uh, type of business you're working with. But is process consulting essentially have like here are the 10 main questions that we're going to ask when we sit down and I'm guessing the questions that you're asking some of them they've thought of, but I'm guessing some of them are triggering some green lights. We're like, Oh my gosh, we've never been asked that question or we've never thought of it that way. Is there kind of an outline for this where like on day one or the first week or whatever, you know, you, you ask all these questions, is it kind of laid out for you or is it, is it, does
1: it vary greatly depending on who you're working with? When a, a group comes and says or a client comes and says, Here's what we're facing, there really is a set of questions and it is those those interrog what do we call those interrogative pronouns or whatever, that why who, what when, <laughs> right, where right. it you 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 just follow their line of thinking, but as you're listening, you're listening with a degree of architectural understanding for a process so i'm listening to everything you're saying i'm looking around getting in your context and all that but as i want to feed it back to you and say is this what you're telling me i want to make sure i've got this fully rendered in a why who what when where how format so in a sense yes you've got this set of questions that you use repeatedly because it helps you to design a process but it also gives you then again this artifact where you can you've now made it external you can actually put it up on a screen or on a board and look at it together and now you're kind of shoulder to shoulder working at it rather than just remembering what was said
0: okay so you're not actually essentially you know giving them advice, you're helping them answer their own questions. Like they're going to come in like, we don't know how to do this. And you come in and ask the questions and you know, the data that they need to, to succeed or to solve their problem comes out through the questions. And I'd imagine that the, you know, the aha moments when you see it trigger when they're like, Oh my gosh, is very satisfying from your chair.
1: It sure can be. And the moments where they say we have not thought about this, that's what we do. We help to expose those gaps so that they can have a structured, reasoned um, map for their next steps that if somebody gets switched out in the middle of it, they can go to school on it pretty quickly and, and get right in step with it. And if you have a whole group of people that have to do this work together that may have varying interests, you found a way to congeal that, create alignment, have people declare their ownership so it's very clear who's doing what and you can't really hide. Yeah. This then means that people who prefer to hide... Uh, who, or who are somewhat passive in their um, approaches or responses, that's where sometimes the difficulties come in. Well, that's where the accountability
0: piece is, right? right? Yeah. Right. So when they figure out what they have to do, do you continue on and say, all right, now that we know what we have to do, how are we going to do it? And then you lay out you know, a roadmap for probably measurable expectations or things that need to happen. Do you continue with them? To hold them accountable, or do you let them do that on
1: their own? With many clients, we continue with them because they've learned to value the facilitation uh, of this work. So we're often there holding out this artifact, like, here's our process, and saying, here's where we were, and this is why we're doing it, this is where we are. Has anything changed? Have we learned anything? Is there any adaptation we have to make? Okay, with those adjustments now, here's what we're working on now. And here's what will come next. So you're creating this line of sight, bring everybody back into the same conversation all over again. And this way, the people who have role responsibilities can advocate for things. They don't have to do that as well as direct traffic in the conversation. So by going with that third party, they find that it really creates a flow. They get a momentum that exceeds anything if they were doing it just by themselves. Some clients like the fact that in our approach, knowledge leaks. So they're learning to design and facilitate their own processes. And so this, here's a chance for us to practice what we've learned. Can you look at it? Can you check with us after the fact? And then one more comment here. There are a number of times that in that design, there are some expertise gaps that are exposed. They don't have what they need on site. Sure. Maybe they have a vendor or another consultant, or maybe they need something to be sourced. Right. So we have a pretty deep well that we can go to and many process consultants have that kind of background. They're really strong in HR, they know fundraising or they're really great at uh, engineering or something along that line. And oh, if that's what we need, let's get this person in who cares about this being a process, who likes their knowledge to leak into a system so they can do this on their own. And then we bring the expert in at that point.
0: Yeah, so you're like, you know what? It looks like we need to build this out. And so if you don't have anybody internally, we know Jack over here and he's the expert and he's who we trust. How about we pull Jack in? Would you be comfortable? So yeah, that's great. So let me ask you, how many companies have you consulted over the last 20 two years?
1: Um, I am personally approaching about 800. Okay. Um, That's amazing. So
0: now that you have this incredible body of work where you've consulted all these companies, have you seen that the problems that companies are dealing with are are universal? You know, that there are like, here are the top five things, you know, that companies where companies break down. Or I mean I'm sure there weren't 800 different problems you know, but you know what what are the top you know three or four that you see where companies hit a wall and they and, and then they they pull you in. What well, what's been your experience with that?
1: I'm thinking of a response here that's on two levels. The first one is the universality of the issues, which you touched on, and. I think I'd like the analogy of a child that's growing up. All children grow up. They all have developmental stages. They're, they're going to go through a growth spurt. Their metabolism is going to change. And it's also going to be different for every individual mm-hmm. uh, because of their context, because of the physiology. So it's the yeah. same and different. And that that um, mystery of how it is the same and different, embracing that actually helps you with a client to be be attentive to their context and the unique moment they're in as well as using solid business wisdom or solid business practices that being said the ones that really tend to show up the most and it's often because we're working with the c-suite and boards or the ownership ownership set is uh we should know this we should be Omniscient about our business, right. which is a great big myth and lie. Mm-hmm. None of us can know everything, or we wouldn't have issues to face. We'd all be comfortably retired or have met, have met all of our successes. We'd have no more challenges to face. Right. Um, so that is just a big, big lie, but it keeps being told and we keep believing it. And so you're dealing with people who, who are embarrassed that they aren't performing perfectly and actually kind of work against themselves. And so the attentiveness to the person, the respect and dignity we offer them while they're coming to terms with the fact that they actually are ignorant about some things uh, and not that we know the answer either, but being with them, that's a very important element.
0: Yeah, I would imagine that uncovering the fact that you know, I tell my kid, like you said, it's like children. Well, I've got 15 and 13 year old at home and mm-hmm. like we're in the middle of a ton of different development. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, sure. you know, but some, uh, it's something my wife and I have to go back to our kids about all the time is we tell them, we give them authority. We're like, it's okay to not know. And that's been a really important yeah. kind of recurring sequence in in our house. And it's something that I believe in too. It's being a business owner. My wife owns a business too. And so so I think understanding and knowing that it's okay to not know it's empowering. It's uh, it's it's it can be, it can be comfortable once you mm-hmm. know that. Obviously, you want to you want to figure out how you need to learn what you need to know, and that's the next step. But yeah, I think there's uh, there's power in that. But you're right. I'm sure that there have been times in my life where. I felt like I should have known something. I don't know mm-hmm. where that comes from. I don't know if it's a human thing. I'm sure there's a mix of ego and pride, you know, that that kind of can derail us at times and things like that. And so those are some big, uh, I guess, probably revelations that you mm-hmm. uncover when you're working with people.
1: Yeah, that's that's a that's one. And this the second one I think I would point to is almost uh, like a twist on that. And that is where actually we're seeing this in increasing measure where leaders are actually offloading their learning and offloading their thinking to the technology that they're bringing in. And so in a lot of companies where they are taking on a fairly sophisticated operating system that can help them with inventory and accounting at the same time, they are starting to trust and serve what the technology is set up to do rather than making the technology serve them. Sure. So now they're not managing complexity in the way they once did, and so a new opportunity or a new problem emerges, and they're saying, well, that's outside of what I know, or that's not what I do, or that belongs to somebody else, or we'll have to see what the software spits out, Right, and, as opposed to attacking it and, and going at it as, as a learning modality yet again.
0: Okay. So talk to me about some of the companies that you work with. Do you work with, you know, small startups or um, do you work with, you know, Fortune 500 companies or everything in between? And when have you seen – is there is there a period in – in a company, like it's usually around year four where they hit this wall and they don't know what to do. Is there kind of some hot spots, you know, that they they hit some 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 dead ends and they they need to come to you? So, like, what size companies, and then when is a proper time for them to to utilize you?
1: So, process consulting in general really is agnostic when it comes to what type of business or what size of business. It is general. It's a it's a general great mental discipline for problem solving problem iteration and solving for design group international in specific we have a really unique uh niche we might say in that many not all but many of the consultants who have come to design group international have a, a big background in what we would call associational systems so think like a sport or a club or a professional organization of you know carpenters from all across the country or um, uh, the YMCA or franchises or whatever where you have multiple bottom lines in play because you have some kind of global or national brand but everybody who's uh, in their own, on their own like Maybe farmers insurance, or sure. <laughs> you're at, you know, sure. where you, you're your own business owner, but yet you're tying to another brand. And so there's like a double or triple bottom line in play and all kinds of moving parts. So the complexity itself becomes even more sure. complex. This form of business is the oldest form of humans. A gathering to do business together. It goes all the way back to the Greek, what they call the amphictyones These are like the guilds of of sculptors or tinsmiths or whatever else they were making. Okay. And uh Ben Franklin set up all of his printing shops up and down the eastern seaboard by taking out a piece of the print shop, helping somebody get started and then they ran their shop. Well at that point again you have these complexities and they're hard to study they're notoriously difficult for business schools to say here are the case studies or here's what happened in the longitudinal study much easier it's much easier to uh, study Fortune 500 stockholder organizations monolithic things that are stable or growing or you know yeah. shrinking over time so our folks are often called on because there's just no shortage of Processes that have to be figured out among people who aren't clear uh, Mm -hmm. about what matters because people tend to pull apart and protect their bottom line rather than the corporate ecosystem that can benefit everybody and brought them together in the first place. So we spend a lot of time there as much as any other place.
0: Great. Talk to me a little bit about what it was like growing your business. Um, I, I think I'm getting the sense that like you're excellent at what you do, and you. I think you entered your company, you know, fully armed and, and prepared and ready to go. What was it like to, you know, go from one client to two and two to four and 40? Where it was, it just oh my gosh, you guys did such a great job! I know somebody else that can use your help. I
1: mean, were you referral right out of the gate? So there was some referral right out of the gate because I'd been doing this kind of work, uh, but for specific entities or specific projects. And when I began to say, okay, now I'm actually making myself available. uh, There were a couple right out of the gate that said, let's get going. But in our work, we talk about how easy it is to porpoise. So you're up out of the water, you're profitable. But at the meantime, you don't, Because you're so busy, you're not lining up projects that will come on the back end. So now you're back underwater Mm -hmm. until you can line them up. And that is not a healthy way to do business. You tend to be functioning out of anxiety. And if you're an anxious process consultant, you're not. (laughs) You're supposed to be the (laughs) non-anxious presence in the room. So that doesn't help you, right? So we we went from that to... um, Uh, to about five or six. And over time, I learned that a single person who's got a practice, if they're somewhere between five and seven clients at any given time, they're going to have a very good practice. They're going to make a little bit of money. They're going to be able to be attentive to their client uh, or clients and they're, they're going to build their practice. But if you're going to have a practice that involves many of them, then you have to create an organization. You have to create a platform. And it was probably about twelve years in that we sat down and said, "What do we have here? What it would look like? What would it look like for us to have a mature practice that others would want to join when the, those of us who established it retire or move beyond uh, this role?" And so we began to build that out. And so at that point, we had about fifteen clients at any given time. A little bit up, a little bit down, and I told you earlier. You know, we're running about a hundred now, so mm-hmm. we have scaled in the last ten years from about fifteen to a hundred. Whereas the first dozen years, we went from let's start. Wow, we got one to about fifteen. Wow, in you know, in any given month. So yeah. been a lot of growth in more of an exponential way in more recent years. So how are you staffed? I mean, do
0: you have a, uh, how many consultants do you have? And how many consultants are working like per job? How does, how did you Mm -hmm. figure all that out?
1: Uh, Design Group International started and has always been a virtual organization that Uh gave us sort of a price uh, competitive advantage to the brick and mortar firms that are out there. Uh, we've joked a lot that COVID brought the rest of the world to us because now everybody sure. is willing to be virtual like we've been doing this for 15 yeah, years nothing strange and now we're making this conversion what do you know how do you do hybrid workplaces all that kind of stuff gave us a, a whole new um, way that we might be compelling mm-hmm. and, and um, be able to offer something so that's been actually a part of our growth the last couple of years because it's new kinds of processes that organizations were resisting before that they, they had to enter in. As a virtual organization, we went with independence. So they are people who do not get assigned work. They choose to bring their work to this platform, and the platform is literally selling its service to the consultant who says, man, this saves me all kinds of money, and I've got colleagues, and I've got a brand. I'm, I'm signing on here, and I'll bring my business here. But with any project, they're saying whether they will or not. There's no assignment that comes to them. So they're all independents. And for our back office, we went with vendors who may provide service for several people. So we were doing this gig work economy from the get-go. You invented it. Uh, no, but I think we're early, in you know, a very early fashion, adopt early adopters. Yeah, 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 early, very much so. So how hard is
0: process consulting to train? Or were you picking up people that were already versed in it? And uh, then did you have to kind of, you know, mold
1: them to your model? Like, what what was that like? Again, I'll be just so grateful for the work that Ed Shine did in writing this down and providing a lot of case studies and also to Peter Block, who said, here is how a consulting practice that's mature and responsible, this is what it looks like. And then we also heavily borrowed from Etienne Wangard, a Swiss scholar who has written about what is a community of practice as a specific organizational type. And so blending all of those together helped us say this is who we are and this is how we're going to function. And it became uh, the methodology that, that we've pursued. Along the way then, we had people saying, well, I've always liked being client-centered and coming alongside and serving and feeling good and being able to wrap it up in a bow and walk away. What you're doing is what I want to do or what I've been doing, but it's like this is a home or this is a methodology or a profession, and I had no idea. So can I talk more? And we ended up uh, discovering that it's not hard to train because anybody can remember why, who, what, when, where, and how, and you can very mechanically awkwardly ask those questions and write down the answers and then it starts to get easier that you start to create a neural pathway where that's what you naturally ask of people instead of saying wait 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 there's this list i've got to work through and and so you you get more artful and more accomplished at it and maybe even better at framing specific questions that you know elicit these kinds of answers We ended up saying, okay, this then really is a vocation. This is a profession. We can train people for this. We can actually raise the bar. And it was out of that that the Society for Process Consulting was created where there is actually now a professional credential uh, for people. There are three levels of that credential, depending on how many years they've been doing it, to um, become more accomplished and more visible to other colleagues uh, for how this is done, and then to actually keep raising the bar.
0: That's great. So you invented a credential, essentially, or created one,
1: right? Mm-hmm. What's the credential? Uh, the certified process consultant. And then there is an advanced and an executive level. So how do you, how would one go about achieving that? Uh, the certified process consultant. You basically go through what we would call the one hundred and one course. It's twelve sessions. You're in a cohort of three to five people, so these are not large classroom experiences. You will know the people at the end of that time, which means you'll actually have a larger network of people who can connect you, and you're building a a network that you can use or refer things to if you surface something with a client and they are saying, We don't have this resource. Well, I know somebody who did. I just finished a class with them. That's the stuff that begins to happen. Um, There are a couple of other individualized sessions that go with the 12 sessions that the cohort works through. A little bit of reading, a little bit of writing, uh, where they are developing a vision for what their own practice would look like. How long does that take to achieve? We normally run the classes in six weeks. Okay. Uh, So all 12 sessions happen in a six-week period. Um, We can go a little longer, and every now and then somebody says, look, I recognize um, that there's no current class being offered, but I need this now. I'm really ready to get started. Can I go with some individualized instruction? And we'll do that as well.
0: Cool. That's amazing.
1: You told me a story of when we met previously –
0: And I was—it's a great story. Uh, When you get resistance from a client that brings you on, so let's say you get hired by a CEO or a founder, and now all of a sudden you're sitting across the desk from not that person, but the person that you're expecting to help—you know, CFO or COO or whatever—and that person. Just isn't feeling it. They're like, I don't know why you're here like Mm -hmm. this. My, my boss told me I got to meet with you. Like, I'm, that's something that probably happens semi regularly with you. And I just love the way you handle it. So can you walk me through how you handle that kind of resistance and how you get on the same side with them?
1: So if it's just an individual conversation, um, then it's fun to do some what we might call verbal judo. Uh, They're they're coming at you with, uh, I don't like this, or I feel resistant, or this is being forced on me, or they start actually making you sell them again, like, how can you help me, and what do you know, and all that Instead of answering those questions, you go one level deeper, maybe it's even more than one level, down to their sense of well-being. They're anxious. They're resisting. And so um, can you tell me about that, uh, even naming it? Can you tell me about that? Can you tell me what's, what's happening for you here? And, if I, and more often than not, I uncover the fact that they've actually been an advocate for the very thing I'm there to help them do. Uh, uh, and I'm, I'm not there to give them the advice for how to solve the problem, but attacking this problem is something that they were advocating for and they even had a solution and nobody was listening to them. Right. And so they knew already what needed to be done and they haven't been listened to. Now I got to talk to this blasted expert about it. So who are you to tell me? Right. And you have that kind of thing and be able to say, you know, it strikes me that you know something about this already. And I've had these experiences in a number of these other organizations where someone in your seat has been advocating for this. And it could have been done, and it hasn't been done, and now you're paying somebody to help you do it who doesn't know as much as you. I'd be really angry if I was you. Is that how you're feeling? Yeah. You know. And all of a sudden, you're kind of beside them, and they're they're starting to say, hey, this person sees me or this person hears me, maybe even better than I'm thinking. And, And you can then actually begin to invite them to help inform it so that the very thing they've wanted can actually begin to happen. Instead of them becoming in this ironic way, the chief resistor yeah. of the very thing that they had once advocated. Right. For. That's why I said, when we met earlier, I was like, your job is so interesting. Cause it's like, you're
0: like part counselor, part psychologist, you know, part like hostage negotiator. Mm-hmm. And cause I read a book, uh, Chris Voss, I think is the guy never split the difference. Did mm-hmm. you read that book? yet? I have not. Yeah. He was the lead, um, hostage negotiator for the FBI for many years. So, it's a book you'd probably enjoy because it's sure. very into like how do you get out of these horrible situations when it's a one-on-one, and not that you're mm-hmm. into hostage negotiations, but you know, it, it, it. He turned into a management and sales book on how to how to win people over and how to get them on your side and stuff yeah. like that. So it's really interesting. So that just reminded me of of that book when you yeah, told me that story.
1: Sure. And this can happen in groups too, by the way. Where where in a group, somebody stands up and points their finger and says you can't tell us what to do or who are you to be here or or they have their arms crossed and they're not going to participate maybe they even physically turn away they won't even face right. the, the work and and to be able to again there name the dynamics like if someone says you can't tell us what to do you're actually right all I'm going to do is ask you what it is you want to do and if you say we well, don't want to do anything well why how did that develop and I'll just pull that out of you like, and get you talking I'm not here to give you any presentation other than Tell me why we're here.
0: Well, honoring their feelings and their fears is really empowering Mm -hmm. and, and, and having somebody, you know, having, being heard is very important. And so if you can lay that out on the table early, I'd imagine that's, that's a, that's a point in the right direction Mm -hmm. for sure. So, Tell me about maybe one of your favorite success stories where you came into a company who was needed your help and and uh, maybe it was a deep hole or something like that and they didn't know what to do. Give me, give me, tell me a story, Mark. Okay.
1: One of my favorite ones is one from some years ago. I, I don't want to convey the fact that there haven't been any successes since. It's just it was just the magnitude of it yeah. and the joy in it. There was a, a group of. Orphanages around the globe that were using a very specific model, rather than being an institution with dorms uh, for children who had no parents, they were creating family homes in a compound and putting a school in the middle. And uh, one of their sites that where they were doing this was in U- it was in um, uh, Kenya with, if you remember, all the massacres in Rwanda mm-hmm. uh, with people who were displaced and were orphaned by genocide. And so you also had the AIDS crisis in the middle of this. So you had war refugees and children whose parents had died from AIDS. How are we going to care for them? And they were working with ch- churches uh, who actually had land around them, and they would create these homes for the... the um, The parents who were dying of AIDS uh, that they could live on, and at the point that the parents died, then they'd put the children in the orphanage that was nearby, but again, in homes with parents, and then they'd actually have a school they could attend. And they were trying to build additional sites like this. They felt that there was about a five-fold growth that they could do in about a ten-year period. And so I met with a number of those sites in different countries as they were developing their own strategic plan locally to that country and to that community that was then rolling up into a larger multinational plan that was being managed in England and Canada and Hong Kong and South Korea and in the U.S. with this internet, it was almost like a U.N. group, yeah. uh, but an international consortium that was watching over the development of these orphanages. This, I'm not going to mention names here, but it did draw the attention of a couple of really large foundations. And if you know anything about the foundation world, uh, they don't normally come to you and say, let us help you fill out an application. Right. But that's what happened. And they got uh, a couple of million dollars out of the gate to help them build some of these compounds and some of these schools because it matched up so nicely with what this foundation was doing. And they discovered it because it was so infectious that it was actually starting to be a story that they were talking about in their own press. This is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. And one day I got this call saying, can you give us an introduction to the CEO because we think this is a grant we'd like to give. Uh, That was pretty amazing. That was not expected. It wasn't a part of the plan. But when we talk about this learning being iterative and... Developing and emerging out of our work together, so that opportunities that we might not see can actually begin to be visible. That was just a great story. That's
0: amazing. That must have been really fulfilling. What what a terrible situation to be to to witness. For starters, it's heartbreaking. All those things yeah. that were happening because we're talking about children losing parents and war and all that things. But to be able to come in and and be a you know a beacon of hope and light. And to help that progress must have been just incredible.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, i met so many special people along the way. I mean, in each of these countries, people who were expats, you know, living in a different country than their country of origin, but also the ability to work across cultures and languages to do this amazing work that literally saved the lives of children who would die the next day if they didn't have a place to go.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Well done.
1: <laughs> it was just fun to be a part of it. <laughs> All right. So,
0: so last question I wanted to ask you is, do you have some best practices for businesses um, where you see missteps, you know, before you come in and and then when you come in, I'm wondering if you think sometimes like, God, if you guys would have just done these two or three things, like you, like you would have been fine. Like what are some of the big glaring holes that you see organizations struggle with that maybe if they learned how to do it you know they wouldn't run across some of these main struggles do you have any like best practices and for for companies like that
1: there are a couple things i think of right away one of them will go right back to the fact that we need to be lifelong learners instead of lifelong knowers i love that and so moving into everything that we have gives us an opportunity to learn. So let's talk about it from that right out of the gate as opposed to we have to go after this out of our competence and out of the well that we already have because now you'll get further down the road and your your blinders are on to be able to see emerging opportunities. Almost all of the disruptive technology, the disruptive products, the new services come out of things that were not being looked for. They're stumbled on. Hmm. They're connected by things. And by turning that light on and say, hey, this is the world and the difference in our success is built out of discovery, enlightenment, learning, connecting things that we don't think necessarily go together and and asking, what do we have here and what can we make of it? Those questions are often not in the room. So that's one. Second one, it hasn't mattered whether it's a business, a stockholder company, a a nonprofit, a solo entrepreneur, whatever, they know their budget and usually either just the income side of the budget or the the um, the profit side like this is what we have as a residual. They know the income or the expense and what remains. They're not functioning off their balance sheet. They're not paying attention to what it what is required for the ongoing capitalization of the business. So they actually end up succeeding their way into failure because they don't have the capital to sustain it, to have a successor, to sell it, whatever. And that becomes its own uh, problem later instead of something that was built all along. So what I'm often looking for is when, if at all, and most of the time it doesn't, does the balance sheet come out as the report of the condition of the business uh, as opposed to how are we doing on our plan for this year? Yeah. Do we have enough money or do we retain enough money?
0: Interesting. Interesting. Awesome.
1: Well, um, does this does
0: process consulting, I would imagine, I know it works in the business world. Does it work anywhere else? Like, is it something that can be done for relationships or? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, or, yeah. you know, marriages or co co-worker, workers or, or, or friendships or whatever.
1: Well, I've been privileged to lead a lot of the um, experiences with that 101 course that we're talking about. And invariably, we're telling folks, okay, now we've really looked at the why, who, what, when, where, how methodology, it's so simple, it just seems like it just should be more complicated than this because we're dealing with complex problems practice it Right. sit down with somebody and write one out and have them examine it with you, or ask somebody to give you something like a, a situation that they're facing in their life, can be personal can be business, but draw them out and organize it according to why, who, what when, where, and how Or you've got one in your home with you and your spouse or you and a child or you and a neighbor, sit down and say, let's do this one together. Real world practice. And invariably they come back and they say, it's amazing. This is something we've been fighting about for two years and in 20 minutes, we got it taken care of. And maybe one quick story. I did this with um, a company uh, that's just a brand new client and they had no experience at their executive level. And it was just the executive team that I was meeting with. And I said, bring three, we'll take two. They brought three great big rocks, entracted problems that they'd been stuck on. And in about two hours, we tackled two of them. They had a line of sight. They were moving it forward. They had a common definition of the problem. And with one of them, and this often happens, they discovered there were actually two issues kind of glommed onto each other. They got a separation and be able to say, which one do we want to take first? Which, what's the sequence to do this? And it just came out of that simple practice of applying it everywhere, Um, so I believe, yes, that even like, where are we going to go to dinner tonight? Why does it matter? (laughs) Who, who actually is the decider here and who's advising? That's a nice clarity to have. Otherwise we're sitting saying, well, we could go greet. No, we could go get Thai. No. Well, wait a minute. You asked me to decide, but now you're saying no. So actually aren't you deciding? I mean, getting clear about that sure takes a lot of headaches away.
0: That's funny. One of my favorite questions to ask, and I don't I'm sure this applies in your world somewhere, and it might be even one that you ask once in a while, but I ran across a question uh, years ago that I'll throw out when things are complicated or we're confused or whatever. I'll be like, you know, what what would it look like if it were easy? Like I love that That's question. That's a great question. You know, and and it kind of uncovers just yeah, let's just get rid of all this stuff that doesn't really matter. What, if this was going to be easy, how would that look? And that's helped me clarify some of the yeah. processes in my agency. It's a great one. Like, you know, we don't need that anymore. This is just weighing us down and let's just get rid of that. And maybe we should just go with what works, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's like one of my favorite questions to, to throw out when I hit a roadblock myself. That's really good. Well, Mark, I mean, the work you're doing is—it sounds exciting. It sounds—it sounds fun to me. Like it sounds very gratifying, um, and it sounds like you're doing really important work to, to uh, for people that that really need it. So, um, I just commend you on on what you've built, and you know how you're helping people out there in the world. And I would imagine it's it's very satisfying and gratifying. And you're at a point in your career now where you are, what are you doing today with the company?
1: <laughs> well, four years ago, almost, uh, getting on five now, I transitioned to the founder of the company. So I'm no longer in its operations. I'm still a part of the partnership and even on my way to exit out of that at some point. Um, so I spend my time now primarily in facilitating some of these courses. I'm not the only one that does them, but I'm, I'm helping with them and then, um, Really working with experienced executives at that juncture where they're saying, you know, the big strategic moves we're on right now, when we land this, I actually won't be in the driver's seat. Uh, and now succession is looming and the risk to the VAT current and future value of the organization is in play. That's about the highest form <laughs> of complexity and process sure. design because the person who's been in charge is going to be slowly not being. And they got to get comfortable with that. They have to have a life to go to. And figuring all of that out at the personal and corporate level, not just for the person who is stepping away, but for the person who's coming in and being very planful about it in advance. I often say it's really good to end with the end in mind mm-hmm. uh, as well. So when we're doing that kind of work, uh, it's about the the most um, sophisticated form, and I take great joy in that. So I spent a lot of time in just pure executive advising at that season in the executive and the company's life.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: Let me ask you, what was it like for you to make
0: that transition to founder? I would imagine that it it might have been emotional. Um, Was it hard or were you ready? You're like, you know what? I'm so ready to be, I've done my work here and I'm ready. Or was it something you struggled with? You know, gosh, I love this so much. I don't know if I want to stop. But what was that decision like for you? And how did you get to that decision?
1: It's the hardest work I've ever done. I'd like to think that I did it well and I'm doing it well but that actually is not something I get to claim only those who benefit from the way I've transitioned could actually say he did or didn't it well didn't do it well mm-hmm. i also have learned that it is what everyone will remember so no matter what you've accomplished up until that moment how that transition goes and how you step away and the condition in which the business is left so that the successor can succeed, at least their success isn't hampered. That's what everyone remembers. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll get this thing: all oh, they did this great thing, but at the end, right. you know, They couldn't let go, yeah. and so the, couldn't win the big game, right? Right? right. So that and the work and the muscles and the aptitude that's required of you in the end is different from the one that built the business in the first place. Yeah. So you're in it, you're doing it, and now you're actually succeeding by restraining by not stepping in, by only touching things at the most strategic moment. Yeah. I have one friend that says, you don't touch anything unless it's severing an artery. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> when you when you actually rescue it. But to have that kind of wisdom means you're detaching even before people know that you're detaching. It's just extremely hard work. I knew that I was ready for two reasons. One was... Uh, my wife and I, my first wife and I had actually founded this together, and she had passed. Mm. And uh, she had been at the center of this thing. She ran all the ops and and uh, was the CFO. She She was the nerve hub for this business. She was gone. And we had a chance to look at our own succession planning. And it worked. People stepped in. We didn't really lose a beat upon her death. But there was something about the heart of it for me that was no longer there and I was finding much more joy in serving clients than trying to run the enterprise. The second element of it was um, you often don't get to choose the timing if you're going to do it well. I had a similar moment to the one I'm going to describe, but I once worked with a veterinarian who was in his early 50s and he brought on a new young vet hitting about 30 years of age knocking it out of the park, really doing it well, and began to say, I'd love to own my own veterinarian practice rather than be somebody's employee. I've got a vision for it. There's a way I want to do it. And this guy began to realize, if I don't sell to this protege, I will lose the one person that I found in all these years I think could really do it. Oh, wow. Am I ready? Yeah. I'm not ready. What do I do? I know. This just showed up out of nowhere almost, right? And ultimately decided to sell. Oh, wow. And I talked to him about a year after, and he was saying, best choice I ever made. I actually went back to work for that veterinarian. I'm in two or three mornings a week. I'm doing these procedures, and the rest I'm following the other interests that I thought I'd never get to. Great. Um, But at the front end, he could not really get his heart around. There's a lot of anxiety for sure. him. And I think I had a similar kind of moment where I'm looking, here are our experts, people who've got entrepreneurial skill that I don't have, uh, that I'd have to really work hard to do, and they're just going to do it naturally. Yeah. I want to get out of their way. And that's what really made the choice uh, pretty easy in the end, difficult yeah. to live into, but but easy to make
0: yeah well there 's a point in uh, every entrepreneur or founder or business owner 's life where these uh, questions and decisions have to be made. I think about it regularly for me, and i don 't have an answer for for me in my business mm-hmm. yet you know and so mm-hmm. but so i like to I like to hear other people so i can <laughs> so I can bank stories and and hopefully make the best decision when the time comes for mm-hmm. me so Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming in, man. It's been, uh, I'm so glad that we've met and now we're friends and this is incredible and and the work you're doing is, is, is admirable. And so, um, I'm excited to, to share your story with people and I just really appreciate you coming in and, and spending some time with me this morning. Thank you, Matt. All right. Take care. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. My name is Matt. This is none of my business. You can find me all over the place. I am on LinkedIn. You can find me on my blog at Dietz Agency. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Dietz Agency. And uh, you can even send me an email at mdeetz at farmersagent.com. Thank you so much for listening and keep up the good work.